Hi folks, this is Jack Smirka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 4th, 2015. This is episode 1687 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for your expert counsel Q&A. And I think for quite a while with all the events and holidays and everything else, this is the first time in quite a while we've had a completely normal, as scheduled, everyday type of week where we had the listener feedback show on Monday, the standalone show on Tuesday, the Wednesday interview, the Thursday uh, listener call show, and then Friday, uh, the big finale expert council uh, show, and it's a great one today. Uh, I've got the people you haven't heard of, or haven't heard of, haven't heard from recently. Uh, Tim Glantz, Brian Black, Jeff Lawton, um, all all these guys that you maybe haven't heard from from a while, for a while will be on the air today. And I think I've got almost everybody's responses for the next two shows as well. So we should have pretty full dugouts for the next two expert council Q&A shows. That'll take us right up to Christmas. So we're going to finish out the year good and strong with regularly scheduled programming right up until Christmas week. Also, I'm letting you guys know, uh, I kind of strayed off for like the last year of doing interviews with other people where they would interview me on radio and podcast. I'm about to start doing some more of those. I've been contacted by a lot of people recently, and I've decided I just need to make time. It's one of my ways of giving back. When I go on somebody else's show, I know that if I tell you guys about it, you'll give them a listen, and that might help them, and I need to be doing that. I kind of got gently reminded of that kind of that, that social obligation uh, in a Zello conversation about a month ago, and uh, I've taken it to heart. And uh, I always want to be given back. Sometimes I feel like I don't have enough time, but the reality is we all have the same amount of time every day. And the more we give back, in the end, the more we get. That's not why we do it, but it is how karma works. And it is a good little bit of an incentive to keep giving back all the time. So I'm going to be doing that. So if you have a show of your own, you'd like to interview me or whatever, get in touch with me. At this point, we're probably looking into January with the way this year is going to end. But I'll get you in touch with Dorothy. We'll get that all set up. And whatever I can do to help people, that's what I want to do. Before I do get into uh, your questions, answers for the expert counsel, there's responses and in some cases my little additions to it. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. 
A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, Directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, Directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up, I'd like to remind you about the Member Support Brigade really quick. That's how you can support this show and the work that I do. Generally, I say it's 18.5 cents a, 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 a show to do that at $50 a year, but I am running a sale right now from Thanksgiving all the way till Sunday night. Uh, I am running a, a, a discount sale on the MSB. The discount code is TURKEY, all lowercase, T-U-R-K-E-Y, TURKEY, and you can get your first year for 30 bucks. You can get the discount if you want to pay by United States Mail. Just go to the members page at the bottom. You see all the options. If you click on pay by mail with check or money order or pay by silver with check uh, by mail, you click on it. There's a form. You fill it out send it in. And uh, just write TURKEY on the form, and we'll know to apply the discount. Those of you paying by silver will give you a couple extra months. Let me say something about those of you that order with the form now or in the future. Please, 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 I'm begging you, please, print your freaking email as clearly as possible. Uh, because when Dorothy does those manual entries, if she gets your email wrong, and if that email exists somewhere in the world, we don't even know that you didn't get it. Okay? So please be clear with your email. If you are going to pay... For MSB with silver in the mail, 
no matter how many people in the United States Postal Service get butthurt with me every time I say this, make sure you package the silver in a way that makes it impossible for them to know what's in there and difficult for them to get it out because there are thieves in the U.S. Postal Service. Not only do we have silver stolen in the mail, when people do package it well, we often see that there was an attempt by somebody to remove it. I think it's pretty stupid to risk a federal felony to steal an ounce of silver, but apparently there's some, some stupid people in the supply chain somewhere within the USPS. So please package things accordingly. I know back when I was a kid, no one ever even thought about something being stolen by the United States Postal Service. It was unthinkable. Unfortunately, those days are gone. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the history segment. Alex Shrugged has two cured up, queued up for us today. Cured, maybe that's on my head because of the first one. Dr. Mom helps discover scabies and Isaac Newton's scientific revolution. Tempted to read about Isaac Newton. Going to advise you to go read it for yourself at TSP Wiki today because there's something very relevant in the first one to what happened recently here at TSP uh, Ranch Nine Mile Farm with a coyote. So here we go. Dr. Mom helps discover scabies. Scabies has been a well-known disease for centuries, but its cause has been a mystery. The word itself comes from the Latin word scratching. A rash appears on the skin with small bumps that itch terribly. It's best known as a disease of children, but almost anyone can get it. This year, Dr. Giovanni Cosmos Bernomo notices that mothers help their children with the itching by using a fine needle to break the skin. Squeeze out a small globule of fluid. These mothers then crush the globule with their fingernail as if they're killing a flea. So the doctor takes a closer look at the globule under a microscope. He's surprised to see a six-legged insect with two horns. It is a mite. He sees these little mites eating their way into the skin, looking for more carefully. He, looking more carefully, he realizes they're also depositing small eggs under the skin. He becomes one of the first doctors to discover the exact cause of the disease right after Dr. Mom. My take by Alex Shrugged, FYI, dogs and coyotes get a skim, skim, similar skin disease called mange. Fortunately, the mange mite does not reproduce under human skin. It can cause some itching, though. The scabies rash is an allergic reaction to the mites that bore under the skin. They spread under crowded conditions such as daycare, school, old folks' home, and your own home. It is one of the first things doctors look for in children after lice. For treatment, there's some over-the-counter soaps and lotions that contain pesticides for scabies mites, but these are considered second-line choices. The first-line choices are all prescription drugs and lotions. I avoid giving medical advice, so I'm leaving it there. Check with your doctor for specific advice. Now, what this has to do with something that recently happened here was the coyote that I had to kill. Um, a lot of people ask questions about that coyote. And they said, you know, that seems unusual the way this coyote was. Like it was coming and just killing and killing and killing my ducks, and it wasn't leaving. And it was just kind of hanging out in the middle of the day doing that. That coyote had mange. Sarcoptic mange is, is, is the, the variety of mange that we're talking about here. It's extremely, extremely aggressive scabies mite that causes sarcoptic mange. And yes, it can infect you, it can infect your dogs, it can infect your livestock. And while the mites do not reproduce under human skin, if they already have been fertilized, they lay the eggs that they have to lay under human skin. So the, the infections in humans can be quite long. In animals left untreated, it's almost always fatal. So one reason that that coyote may have been behaving the way that it was, running around here in the daytime in a suburban area, 
um, not even running away when the dogs are barking at it and things like that, just ignoring them, is that it was at such an advanced stage of sarcoptic mange that it was unable to effectively act as a predator any longer. And as I said when I killed the animal, and I, I, I said the word that I used was I murdered it, and I did. I had no remorse whatsoever, and I did it with malice and a forethought because of what it did to me and to my animals, all right? Um, but it's not because it's an evil creature. It was behaving that way because of this situation. Absolutely nothing I can do for it, nor that I want to do for it in that situation. But why you need to know this is if you're especially using livestock guardian dogs, and they ever end up killing one of these animals, you need to start treatment for your animals as though uh, they were infected. And the thing with this is the treatments that they use generally will kill the mite, but not the eggs. And since they will hatch and reproduce in canines, you have to keep treating them over and over and over and over and over until you've gotten everything knocked out. And you do have to worry about spreading to your other animals and what have you. This is important to know. That's why I didn't let the you know Charlie roll around with the damn thing on the ground whatsoever. It's one of the reasons you saw the picture of it hanging up in the tree. It wasn't just because that's what you do with someone you kill it and you want to take a picture of it and let people see it. It was to get it away from him so he was in minimal contact with it. And, uh, again, it's laying out in the middle of a field right now and being fed upon by vultures and its head's on a T-post. Yes, it was with malice of forethought that I eliminated that coyote from a... living, um, but that's probably why. And I thought it was a good teachable moment. So a lot of times we can learn things from history. The other thing we learned from this little history segment is that all these crazy, uh, you know, uh, what they call old wives tales and stuff like that and, and uh, you know, herbalists, at-home herbalists and stuff, these methodologies that people use to treat diseases and illnesses and things like that, uh, they work. They work. Not all of them work, for God's sakes, but many of them do and they're based on fact And it, it, it's in, sometimes it's based on an intuition. But the treatment that these ladies were using at the time, when they didn't have all these you know, things that we could use today to treat scabies, of breaking the pustule, removing it, and getting whatever is in there out, was effective. Might not be the go-to treatment today, but if that's all that's available, and in the future someday it may be, it works. We can learn something from these traditional methods of curing things. All right. Uh, with that, let's get into the uh, main topic of the, today's show, which, of course, is your questions uh, and the answers to them from the expert panel. Remember, the way you send uh, something like this in is email it to me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC expert in the subject line and tell me who the question's for. Please use the expert panel member's full name, first and last. Um, if I catch it, and like you just said, this is for Gary or whatever, I'll append it before I file it. But when I go in and search, I usually search by the last name of the expert panel member because there's so many Garys in the world, for instance, for Gary Collins. So I'll, I'll look for Collins or I'll look for Pugliano. If you want to know all of the expert council members we have, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. And on the front page at the top, you'll see about... And you'll see underneath about Meet the Expert Council. You can click on there, or any of the Expert Council shows have a link to that page as well. And you can read all about all the Expert Council members right there. Uh, with that, again, our uh, first question today is for Council Member 
Brian Black, and he actually reads the entire question during his response, so I won't read it to you. Uh, but it is on um, electronic locks. And uh, Brian, what have you to say on this issue uh, from a security standpoint? Hey, TSP, this is Brian Black from ITS Tactical, answering a question from another Brian that spells his name the wrong way with an I. Uh, from North Texas, who says, who asks, are any electronic push-button locks from vendors like Quickset or Schlage reasonably safe? Are there any push-button electronic locks that you would use? I'm building a house, need to select door hardware. This is a house in a rural location. Someone attempting to get in while we're not home will likely have plenty of time to work on the locks. I know the lock is not the only point that can be breached, but I'm working on one thing at a time. Any other advice on lock selection would be very welcome. Hey, Brian, thanks for the question. So. Basically, what this comes down to is, me personally, I don't trust electronic locks. I mean, I know our doors and vehicles have them and things like that, but that's kind of a, a necessary evil that I deal with. I don't like it, um, but I do know how to bypass the car door if I have to, so it's not really a concern for me. So, on my house, though, I don't, I don't necessarily ever want electronic locks. That's just a, a point of failure. Um, I don't, I don't even have it on a have them on a home safe. Uh, you know, I've looked at electronic safes before for the lock, and I don't trust them. I, you know, I go with the actual combo and just remember the number in my head. That's just kind of how I am. So I don't really have electronic locks to recommend to you, but I do recommend going with a more secure lock, so something like a Medco or a multi-lock um, would be a great upgrade if you're looking for better security on the actual physical lock itself. But, again, you know, criminals are always going to take the path of, path of least resistance, so... If you have a high-security lock and it's not pickable, they're probably just going to go through the window. So something like an anti-break film is probably a good thing to have around your house. It's, uh, you know, it can be done through a, a, a tinting place or something like that. They can come install that, that 3M anti-break film. But, again, all security, just like I've always said, is just buying time. So all you're doing is slowing down the criminal. You're not really stopping them. Any determined tr- criminal, given time and opportunity, is going to be able to exploit any security measures. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, so to, you know, to answer your question, too, about the rural area, so you've got a lot of time and opportunity for a criminal to, uh, to do something there at your property. So I would definitely look at some other security things other than just locks. I know you, your question is specifically geared towards that, but that's just something else to keep in mind as well. So hopefully that helps you out. Um, thanks for the question. Be sure to keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats. www.itstactical.com. Thanks again, TSP. Good stuff from Brian, and I agree with everything he had to say. Um, I've looked at electronic locks for home doors, and I don't know if I'm as against them as Brian because of everything else Brian said. If somebody's going to get in, they're going to get in. Um, and you'd be surprised. I mean, one of the big things I think you can do, and Brian's got uh, some stuff on his side about it, is put anti-kick measures on your door because I think most people would be shocked to see how flipping easy it really can be to kick a door in. And uh, he's got some pretty good anti-kick stuff that he's got on his side. I'll see if I can look that up because I don't think that's in the resources he sent me. Um, but that's, that's uh, you know, it doesn't do you any good if your lock is secure and a guy just walks up to it and donkey kicks the shit out of your door two or three times. A donkey kick 
is when you stand, you kick to your rear with just slip, uh, a simple lift up and kick. And you'd be surprised at the amount of power you can do with that. Uh, or another thing that's often done if door jams are weak is you just sit down and people actually telling people how to break into a house. But anybody that does it for a living knows how to do this. You sit down with your back up against the, the door jam on the side with the hinges. And then you kick the door jam on the side with the, uh, with the uh, lock. And a lot of times a couple kicks and you'll spread out that door jam enough that you can just stand up and push the door in. Um, there's a million ways to get in. Brian's got all kinds of stuff on picking locks and all. So, you know, because of that, if I really wanted the convenience of electronic locks, I, I might very well go to them with a little bit less concern, just because of all the other things. I think that it's a place where electronics generally make things better eventually, and we're just not there yet. That's that's my overall take. Some additions, I would say, if you're in a rural area, use it to your advantage. Um, have a gate away from the house where there's a certain amount of distance between the gate and the house. It makes people a little bit leery. Uh, because once they're inside that gate, they know that anybody that sees them from that house knows they're not supposed to be there. I mean, gates keep honest people out, but on some level they keep dishonest people out because a burglar wants to come when you're not at home, okay? Plain and simple. It'd be rather, unless they're a professional cat burglar, I've talked about how that works before, uh, daytime cat burglars will slip into a house when everybody's home, go to the master bedroom because they know that's where all the crap is, lock the door and close it and start going through and finding all the low... Uh, low-weight, high-value items like jewelry, money, guns, cash, uh, and slip out a window. And if mom or dad come by and try to get in the door, instead of realizing someone's in there breaking in, what do they do? They argue with each other about who locked the damn door. And, and the guy's gone. And, I mean, I talked to, not talked to a guy, but I heard a guy talk about, you know, this was like one of the best capitalists in the country that robbed houses like houses owned by people like the Kellogg family, like the Kellogg cereal family, uh, and, and did it that way. So, most guys aren't at that sophisticated level, and we can stop them just by locking the door when we're home unless we're you know, going in or out of the door. That's a big thing right there. Um, but they want to get there when you're not at home, so they need to know you're not at home. So when you have that rural environment, you space and you, you, you set the house back off the gate. You keep things like garage doors closed and all. You keep your gates closed. Um, they don't really know whether you're there or not, and anything that makes appearance you might be there, And I'll tell you, two of the biggest deterrent signs I've ever seen in my life, one was the people that lived up behind us on a, on the mountain in Arkansas, and it said keep out or else, and else was spelled wrong, and it was done with hand-sprayed paint, and it looked like some retard did it, and the guy did it that way on purpose. And I knew them, and it bothered me a little bit every time we walked past that sign, even though I knew we were okay. Because you just don't know what you're dealing with. You start hearing banjo music, etc. And the other one was a guy that ran a hunting lodge, And his sign said, you're not lost, you're trespassing. He said that $5 sign was the best investment he ever made at keeping theft down because it took away the same thing that everybody that got caught snooping around ever said. I was just lost. As soon as they saw that sign, you get that sick pit in your stomach, I was going there to hunt. I was a paying customer. There was nobody at the gate. I was a little afraid to go past it. These little extra low-tech methods added to all the cool stuff Brian talks about really helpful. I'll have the link that he mentioned uh, in the show notes, and I'll see if I can find the stuff on uh, anti-kick doors. The next one up is for Council Member Darby Simpson. It's about how to make your own compound feed for pasture, poultry, and pigs so it will be well-balanced and animals will gain well on it. 
Darby, what do you have to say on this one? Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer a question for Victor from the Ukraine about uh, how he can increase the protein content of his feed for his pastured poultry and pigs uh, so that it will be well-balanced and the animals will gain well on it. And Victor, thanks a bunch for sending in your question. Um, sounds like you got a few things going on here. We'll kind of go through it and break it down and, and hopefully, uh, you know, come up with uh, some solutions that will help you. Um, in the interest of full disclosure, Victor, I want to tell you, you know, we do not uh, mix and make our own feeds on farm. Um, being a one-man show with no employees, that is uh, something that I uh, just deemed a long time ago I wasn't going to do. So we actually do use a local grain mill to uh, mix feeds for us. I think it's awesome that you are raising your own wheat and barley and corn and grinding those to uh, you know supplement the the diet for your your ducks and turkeys and chickens, um, and you mentioned that you know that your your animals are eating some uh, alfalfa and some seeing nettles, but that the, the protein content just isn't high enough to get the job done. So, you know um, what we use here um, in, in our region of the states is is uh, non-GMO chemical-free roasted soybeans and now the reason we use soy it's not my first choice please understand but the reason we use soy uh, is because it's what's available to us um, at a reasonable cost and it works really well at getting animals to gain weight and when you're coming at this from a, a business standpoint you know at the end of the day if you can't make money at it then you can't do it uh, for for your livelihood, so you have to do what works. Now, if I lived in the uh, upper Midwest states or even in some of the, the northern plains states like Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, I would have access to something like sunflower seeds. Uh, sunflower seeds make excellent protein sources for your animals. And I don't know, uh, being from the Ukraine, I don't know about anything about farming in the Ukraine, um, if, you know, sunflower seeds would be something you could raise on your farm, um, or if maybe, you know, that was something you could work with one of your neighbors on, where they could raise it for you. Uh, but if, if you have the ability to to uh, raise that, that, that would be my suggestion. Um, there are a couple of guys, uh, you know, nearby that I know use that. They use it at a great cost. Uh, it's it's expensive to truck in, uh, but they do use it. I also know that when they use sunflower seeds, they uh, also mix in some field peas, and I, I believe that that's because uh, some of the amino acids and, and lysine and, and things that the sunflower seeds are, are missing, the field peas make up for. And, uh, field peas, I would assume, are probably something that you could grow fairly easily. They'll grow just about anywhere. So uh, seeing that you're, you're growing wheat and barley, uh, I would think that field peas would be something you could grow uh, and you could use that to mix into your feeds. Now in terms of like what ratios uh, and proportions uh, to mix these in, I can't tell you that. What we do is we follow the guidelines and we've tweaked them a little bit. Uh, but we follow the guidelines um, that are provided uh, by the, the companies that provide the mineral mix for our feeds. And I don't know if you're using a mineral mix. You, you, you didn't say in your, your notes um, uh, in your question if you were using a complete mineral mix. If you're not, 
And if those mineral mixes are available to you, I would really encourage you, uh, Victor, to uh, try and get a hold of them and use them. They're not inexpensive, but they really do make a big difference. Um, it, you know, our, our, our soils are depleted. They're not rich in minerals. Therefore, the, the grains that are raised are not rich in minerals. And the, these mineral mixes really do make a complete feed for our animals. And there are different ones for poultry or, or pork or just about, you know, anything you would want to feed. They've got different ones. Uh, the company we use uh, here is called Helfter. It's H-E-L-F-T-E-R. Helter Feeds. I don't know if that's available to you. Another big company that you may have heard of is Fertrell Company. Um, you know, I, I just I would check around and see if if maybe you can get a hold of of uh, a product like that. Uh, surely there's got to be something, and start mixing that in uh, with these grains that you're raising, and. That mineral mix is, it's gonna have guidelines for, you know, uh, you know, if you're mixing up a, say a 16% protein ration for some pigs, it's gonna, it's gonna give you, uh, guidelines on, you know, how many pounds, uh, you know, uh, of what to mix, you know, like per half ton or per ton of feed. Uh, and I would, I would encourage you to follow those guidelines very, very closely early on and then just keep good notes, um, record lots of data, see how the animals perform, and don't be afraid to, uh, to tweak it. Um, you know, years ago, uh, when we first started using healthier feeds um, with our pastured poultry, they actually did not suggest using fish meal. And uh, organic fish meal is like it is stupid expensive. I mean, it's it's like six times the cost almost, or, or five times the cost of uh, uh, soybeans, uh, which is why we only use a little bit of it. But it does have again some different amino acids, and it just made a world of difference when I finally started having the grain meal uh, mix some of that in, like one of the other uh, supplement companies suggested. And man, the birds just took off, and you know after. After a, a few months of that, <laughs> Helfter actually kind of changed their tune and started recommending that you use fish meal in your mix. So that's something else you could you could look at adding. Uh, but you, you got to get some protein in there when you're giving these guys, uh, you know, wheat, barley, and corn. Those are basically all energy sources. And while there's some protein content in them, there's not a huge protein content content there, and um, they're just not going to gain as well as they could if you had that supplemental protein in there. So uh, those are some things you can look at. You know, any kind of legume that you can grow uh, there in your region of the Ukraine and get it mixed into your feeds, I would strongly suggest doing so. If you don't have the capacity or the equipment or the land to raise that, Consider working with one of your neighbors and 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 uh, you know uh, give them a guaranteed sale on a cash crop that they can raise for you. I mean, what a great partnership! And 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 then again, also try and see if you can't get a hold of a complete mineral mix and uh, get that into your your feed ration as well. And I think you're going to see a, a pretty big turnaround for your your animals, honestly. So, Victor, thanks a bunch for sending in this question uh, from half a world away. I just find that fascinating and really cool uh feel free to email me if you've got more questions victor and i'll be happy to try and help you out and and help you work through all this stuff uh, happy to uh, extend a hand and and see if we can't get a solution figured out for you so anyway hope that helps man and uh good luck with your your farming venture over there in the ukraine 
guys to learn more about me, you can go out to my website at darbysimpson.com. Uh, I've got a lot of free blog articles out there on all kinds of different stuff related to uh, small-scale pasture-based farming. Uh, you can read uh, to your heart's content for free and soak and absorb as much of that as you, you care to. Uh, for those of you that are interested in going deeper, I do offer one-on-one -on -one consultations. There's a consultation tab on the website. You can click on that, read through all the information there, and decide if that's something you want to do. I did want to mention uh, that during the month of December, I am doing a consultation sale. Um, uh, basically, if you purchase a two-hour consult, you get a 20% discount. Uh, if you purchase a four-hour consult, you get a 25% discount. So uh, essentially, you know, you're, you're paying for three hours and you're getting a fourth hour free. Uh, I am only doing a limited number of each one of those, and when they're sold out, they're sold out. Uh, the only stipulation is that we do need to do it in the month of January or February, which is my downtime and it's a great time of year for me to do long consults. Um, unfortunately for MSB guys, we are not uh, doing any MSB uh, membership discounts on top of this sale, but if you are an MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on a consult any time of the year uh, for supporting the show and for supporting what Jack is doing. You can find that information in the MSB section on the website. Guys, thanks so much for the questions. Please keep them coming. Really enjoy answering them all for you. Hope that you all have a uh, wonderful weekend. And Jack, as always, thanks a bunch. Take care. One addition on the sunflower seeds, I feed a lot of sunflower seeds to our ducks. I feed um, a pretty good ration every morning. Uh, I believe it does amazing things for them. But I feed sprouted sunflower seeds. And I, I don't say that because there's anything wrong with them not sprouted per se. I just say that because that's another option uh, that's available to you if you have large amounts of sunflower seeds available. And for people here in the States that you're trying to do better, but you can't go full-on organic or whatever yet, Sunflower is a very inexpensive uh, seed with a lot going for it. As Darby mentioned, it's not a complete protein for your animals. You need other proteins with it, but it's a good protein content. Uh, and it, it's, it's a good staple food source. And it's very affordable sourced properly. And even if you're not getting an organic product with sunflower, it's generally not heavily treated with a lot of insecticides and, and, and herbicides and things like that because sunflowers grow up really tall really fast. So they don't really need a lot of herbicide to not be competed with by weeds because they grow like damn near weeds. They also um, don't really have a lot of pest problems because they're quick, they're a fast producer, and you just don't get a lot of pest damage with sunflower. They grow in relatively infertile fields, so they don't generally get a lot of fertilization either um, from conventional fertilizers. Now, the thing is, a lot of times they're used as part of a rotation, so they may be grown in a field that was previously treated with some things like that. But if it's heavily herbicided, there's no GMO sunflower yet. So if you're going to go with a conventional component to your feed mix, a really great one sunflower. Now the caveat here. You, one of the reasons, that, and I don't know the, the full breakdown of the lysine and amino acids and proteins and all, but one of the main reasons that they may be doing a mix with field peas with sunflower beyond that is that sunflower is very high in oil. And it's probably less of an issue when you're raising a chicken uh, to slaughter in 8, 10, 11 weeks 
than it is when you're using a, a feed as a maintainer for like a laying flock. That really high oil content can spur on early molting in chickens and other uh, birds. So it's it, 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 don't freak out about that. Don't I can't feed it to them every day or whatever. What you can't do is feed it to them as like 70% of their freaking diet. It has to have other things with it to avoid that possible problem. It's not highly likely to happen, but if you go to feeding your birds nothing but sunflower seed for the next four months, you're probably going to have birds slipping feathers and getting into problems. So that's just a small caution to add to that. This next one is for Nick Ferguson, and it's on raising rabbits for money. Uh, and the question comes to us from, let me get this up here, uh, it comes from Levi. Levi says, can one make money with rabbits? What are the conversion rates comparable to? What kind of margin could be expected? Are regional markets too different to give an accurate answer uh, to how North Alabama will perform? Would I be better served devoting my time to other already established sources of income and retain hey there, Nick a hobby Ferguson and a protein source my family? Answer uh, Nick Ferguson, you know quite a bit about rabbits. What do you have to say on this one? Rabbits. And he wants to know if he can make money with rabbits. I don't know. Um, what are the conversion rates? What kind of margins can you expect? Man, those are those are questions that I cannot answer. I don't grow rabbits commercially, and I have no idea what your market will bear where you're at. So... If you're wanting to raise rabbits as more of a commercial venture, first step is market research. You need to do some exploration of your market, your region. You need to find out what do the people in your area want? What do rabbits sell for? What are the legal schmeagle blah, garbage hoops that you have to jump through to even raise rabbits, let alone raise them commercially? So you need to find out all that stuff first before you even know if it's even at all possible for you to do this where you are. Second, <clears throat> um, making money commercially in any venture, you really need to know what you're doing to be able to do it well to keep your profit margin as high as possible. It's really easy to think that you're making money because you're making sales when you're losing money. Um, and I've seen multiple people get into little ventures like this and think, hey, you know, I'm, I'm making sales, so I'm making money. And if you really do an analysis of what their inputs and their costs are, they are losing their shirts. So first off, you need to really know what you're doing with rabbits. So if you've not raised rabbits well and successfully on a hobby level, then you're not going to be able to jump into commercial sales and, and do well. You're, you're going to get in big trouble. So first off, you need to be able to raise them for yourself and for your own usage very efficiently and with very low cost. So 
you need to be able to micromanage these rabbits. You need to be able to take very, very good records and notes and keep up with all that. If you can do that for a couple years and show really good profit margin on your rabbits and fake sell these at the market rates just to you know compare your numbers and see, hey, is this profitable? Could this be profitable? That, that I think, is your, your first step. So raise rabbits for yourself for a couple years and do that and see if it's going to even work in your area. Now, if we're looking at, at it just from the perspective of can I sell X number of pounds of meat versus my input costs and be successful – the numbers are probably going to not be there because you're looking at it just from a meat perspective. So I'm just going to answer this question based on how I raise rabbits and my reasons for raising rabbits. So all I raise rabbits for is meat for my family and dog food and manure for my garden. That's it. So I'll I'll give you some of the numbers on kind of a little breakdown on what my rabbits are worth to me. So every week I try to harvest around five rabbits in breeding season. So I'm hoping to have five bunnies to harvest every week. That means I have eight does in breeding rotation. Every week, a doe gets bred. <clears throat> Gestation is like 28 to 31 days. So pretty much every week, I've got a doe um, popping out a litter. And I have a doe weaning. And I have a doe that her bunnies have been weaned for... A month, two weeks, something like that. <clears throat> Anyways, what I end up with is eight-week-old babies. Yeah, so about a month to two weeks, they've been weaned. So I have bunnies at eight weeks every week. So if I harvest five bunnies every week, that's three to my dog, and two for me. Now, some weeks might be a little low. I might have had a failed litter. I might have had an exceptionally good litter. And there's eight bunnies. And wow, the dogs are getting a lot of food. So let's just assume it's five. You know, live weight is about five pounds of bunny. Dressed out is about three and a half pounds of meat. Now, if we're talking about the dog food, I'm just skinning it. And sometimes I don't, don't even do that. So let's say about four and a half pounds of food, of dog food per bunny. That's 13 and a half pounds of dog food a week. That's $700 a year if you count that dog food at a dollar a pound. At, you know, good dog food, decent dog food is a dollar a pound. You can spend more on dog food than that. Cheap dog food is about... 50 cents a pound ish, $25 for a 50 pound bag. 
that's about normal. So, you know, $50 for a 50-pound bag, that's good dog food. So if I'm pricing that dog food rabbit at a dollar a pound, that's $700 a year in dog food. Now, if I look at ground beef, let's just average it out and say about $4 a pound, and chicken is about $2 a pound. So let's take the average of those two, $3 a pound for rabbit. Let's just assume that meat is worth that to me. That's $21 in meat per week for my family. That's $1,000 a year in meat. So $1,000 a year in meat for my family, $700 a year in meat for dog food, $1,700 a year in rabbits. That's just the meat. That's not the manure. The manure is worth its weight in gold to me. I mean, that's fantastic fertilizer. So this is what I would look at. What is, What are the rabbits going to give me, give my homestead, versus what they cost to keep. If you have um, the watering nipples set up on PVC, so they always have pressurized water from your water source, whether that's a well or whatever, then you don't have to worry about water. If you have feed hoppers, you just keep them full. And then what I do to supplement my feed for the rabbits to make it a lot cheaper is I've got a lawnmower with a bagger attachment. And I mow around my garden, I mow anywhere that there are weeds standing, and it all gets chopped up, put into the mulcher bag, I dump it into a five-gallon bucket, cover my lawnmower back up, take my bucket over to the rabbits, a handful per single animal, a couple handfuls if a doe has a bunch of bunnies. And they chow down on that. Anything that they don't eat gets knocked through the floor. Down on top of all the rabbit pellets, the rabbit pellets all get collected. They either get composted or put right into the garden under all the mulch. So, man, look at the rabbits from that perspective. I'd raise them for a couple years and just give it a shot. See if you can raise them really well and really efficiently that way. And then in that time period, do your market research and see what you can pull out. I hope that answer was helpful. And for everyone else, you can learn more about me at permacultureclassroom.com. I have an email list that you can sign up for. So head on over there. You can also interact with me on my Facebook group called Homegrown Liberty. I hope you all have a great weekend. Um, great stuff from Nick. And I think it's good advice for a lot of us that are thinking, I want to go into this particular animal in order to make a profit. I think that it makes a lot of sense to start out as a hobbyist. And if you end up with a small surplus, you can test your market with that surplus and then start to develop a customer base. Here's the challenge. And we learn this with chickens and ducks and eggs. It takes time to go from hobby to production at such a level that you can maintain a market. And everything Nick said about running your numbers and making sure the profit's there, because sales don't equal profit. Sales equals sales. And uh, a significant portion of your sales when you're selling any product 
is is going to be uh, eaten up with expense. That's why online I like to sell non-material goods because once the product is produced, like a software product or something, then the cost of delivery is minimal, so the sales mostly profit. And as we've got into more and more selling farm product, it's it's an adjustment for me to go. Gee, you know, we sold fifty bucks and it's not forty-eight dollars in profit. That's not cool because I've gotten used to those kind of numbers in non-material goods business. So it's very important you're tracking all your costs and expenses. Even if you're profitable, you need that so that you're deducting as much as possible and paying the government as little as possible. So all of that I agree with. When I looked here just on Craigslist to see what was available with rabbits, I can tell you that most of the people selling rabbits around here are selling mini Rexes and long hair this and Dutch mini that, and they're selling ornamental uh, show rabbits for sixty bucks, eighty bucks, a hundred bucks or more. Now, here's where you got to be careful. That doesn't mean they're selling them. That means they have them for sale at that price. You know, a great thing we can all do. To get that in our head about what's for sale and what gets paid is watch that TV show on History Channel called Pawn Stars. Really cool, cool historical and pop culture items. Plus, you get it's all fake. Of course, it is. Reality TV is all fake, but you do get an insight to the mentality of well, I saw these selling online for $150. How much do you want for it then? I want $150. No. That's not how it works when you're selling through a multi-tier distribution system. And when you're selling to a consumer, on some levels, you are several tiers of that multi-tier. You're the producer and the retailer when you're selling direct to consumer. And getting that mentality down is a good thing. But if you can get to a point where you're producing something for yourself at a profit, then you, you have the numbers and you have the knowns and you've gotten good at it and then you can scale up. Just be mindful of the lag there. Because what happened for us, is, for instance, when we realized what we had with the duck eggs, we had about 18 ducks that were layers. Of those 18, 10, 11 would lay a day. We were getting a little less than a dozen eggs a day. At first, we had a hard time getting people to give eggs a try, duck eggs a try. Once we did, we immediately could not keep up with the market. And the way we were able to land our large restaurant customer without losing them to somebody else was he was doing preliminary work. We had a five-and-a-half, six-month lag between the first time we talked to him and him actually opening his restaurant. That was just enough time to get birds raised up to productivity levels. So it might be a little faster with rabbits, but there's always a lag. So another thing you need to be looking at is if you are going to go from hobby to production. Where can you source adult animals so you can quickly get into that production? And like Nick said, what are the legalities in your you know area? It may be that you can get around everything by saying, we sell you the animal live, and then I'll kill it for you and butcher it for you for free after you pay for it. Who knows? But you got to look into that too. Now Nick's idea with a bag mower, that's huge. It's so simple, and it's you know, it's something you could be doing things like throwing some extra ryegrass down into a patch that's really fertile, that grows really quick, and, and that way you know you're going to have more and, and thinking about things like that. Or if you have a greenhouse, just growing growing out, you know, cheap seed in flats for your, your rabbits, like a fodder-type system without going through the complications of fodder, um, that type of thing. If you're starting to function stack, like, you know, John Dowie does microgreens as his main income source, and he feeds all the leftover roots and everything to his quail and his ducks. And they love that stuff. So every way that you can function stack things adds to what each element can do for you. I would say this. 
it's great to specialize in something, whether it's rabbits or ducks or microgreens or whatever in this world. But don't think you're going to make a living on that. Okay, that is your 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 hub of your wheel, and then you start insp installing spokes. Because once you have a customer that's coming to buy a rabbit from you, it's easy to sell them more. Very, very easy to sell them more. And you're leaving money on the table if you don't work your way into that. Now, you can't do it all at once. Start with one thing as a hobby. Build it up. Create a business off of it. Get a market for that product to where it's you've got regular customers coming back to you. And then start installing your spokes. That's how you make it in the small-scale ag world if you want to really make a profit that's significant enough for one spouse to quit a job or to go to part-time income or go to consulting or whatever. Uh, that's just my thoughts. Let's take the next one. This one is for Tim at Old Grouch Military Surplus. This is a an interesting question, one I really had never given much thought to. Uh, this question comes from Jacob. It says, are there military surplus mess kits you'd recommend? Or would be better would it be better paying the higher prices for commercial gear? Any advice on the care of mess kits and cleaning in the field from Jacob? Tim had a really great answer to this, and I certainly learned some things from it. With that, hey Tim, man, what's up? Hi there, Jack, and all you good TSP listeners. This is Tim Glance with the Old Grouch's Military Surplus, with an answer on a question of from Jacob about mess kits. He asked, "Are there any military surplus mess kits you'd recommend?" Or would one be better off paying high prices for commercial gear? Also, any advice on care of mess kits and cleaning in the field? Um, the first thing I'm going to say is do not go buy the standard U.S. military mess kit that most of us are familiar with. Because uh, it was actually never designed to be cooked in, except as, you know, uh, maybe in an emergency sense. The mess kit, the standard U.S. military mess kit that we're most most familiar with that has the big pan and then the smaller top that's divided into two sections was intended simply to be a eating plate or surface for troops in the field when hot chow was brought out and dispensed because U.S. military doctrine has never included every troop going out and cooking their own meal. So... Because of that, it's got the design that really does not lend itself very well to cooking. You've got the one uh, bigger side of it that can be a decent frying pan, but it's horrible for boiling water or doing soups or anything. And then you've got the other side which with the two compartments that's really not good for cooking anything. So my first advice is don't buy that one. Now, there is a U.S. military mess kit made for when troops were intended to cook, and it's called the Mountain Mess Kit. And it was issued to mountain troops and others where they said, well, these guys are probably going to be more likely to have to be either cooking in the Arctic with freeze-dried stuff, they're rehydrating it, or they're actually going to have to cook fresh foods. And it is a much bigger mess kit. It has a, it's all round. It has a large aluminum pot, a smaller aluminum pot nested inside of it, and then the lid is stainless steel that flips over and serves as a frying pan. They are really nice. They are big and they are heavy, however, for uh, if you're going to be packing it. An alternative to that, one of my current favorites, is actually the Czech military mess kit. And it is made up of the same style design as the U.S. Army mountain mess kit, but it's smaller. It, the handles are slightly different, but the biggest thing is it's smaller and it's lighter. 
the two pots are still more than big enough to cook for one or two people for, for a single meal, whereas the, the U.S. Mountain Mess Kit is a bit of overkill. Uh, and the pan, being a, it's a little smaller, but it's still big enough to do most of your single-person cooking needs if you're going to fry something. So I'd be on the lookout for those. Those can be picked up in the $10 to $15 range. Uh, I've got them in my shop now, and I'll, I'll send a link along there. The other options out there, the German mess kits, are um, they're really good if you're cooking soups or stews. The frying pan lid uh, is not quite as nice. It's kind of a kidney-shaped one. And most of the other ones that are out there, past that you've really got to look at some of the higher-end stuff. But best bang for the buck right now for size, usability, and style is definitely the, the check mess kits that are out there on the market. As far as care and use, biggest thing, keep it clean. You've got to keep it clean. And that means, you know, hot boiling water when you scrub it, soap if you've got it. If you get in a situation where you can't carry a little bit of soap, scour it out with sand or dirt and get it really clean. Because a dirty mess kit will make you sick. And being sick out in the woods can kill you, especially in a survival situation where there's nobody to call to come and, and carry you out. Um, the other thing to look at is I'm going to say every person needs to do their own research and make up their mind. There are some people who don't like using aluminum because there have been studies that linked it with Alzheimer's. There have been subsequent studies that said that's not an issue. Personally, in my opinion, you know, I might consider not using aluminum cookware on a daily basis in the home. But for, you know, the limited amount of time I'm going to actually cook on it out in the field, I don't think an aluminum mess kit for my needs is going to be a hazard. But for every person, uh, look, do the research, and kind of judge that for yourself. So I hope this helps, and uh, check out uh, all the different styles of mess kits. If you can find one of the U.S. mountain mess kits and you're okay with that much weight and size, it's a heck of a thing to have. I don't have any in my shop. They've really dried up in the last 10 years or so, but you might find a used one out there somewhere. Otherwise, check out the check mess kits and uh, some of the other similar ones. And everybody have a great day, and thanks for the show, Jack. Well, good stuff from Tim Glantz, and I just went ahead and picked up one of those check mess kits just for the heck of it. And uh, while I was there, I noticed he had some pretty cool little Swiss uh, alcohol stoves, and I picked up a set of those, too. So I'll put a link to those along with the other link uh, to the check mess kit that, that Tim mentioned. This next question is for Doc Bones. And I have to tell you, I haven't listened to it yet. I'm interested to hear what he has to say. Because I'm what I consider a moderate on this subject of vaccinations. Uh, of course, Doc Bones is actually a practicing physician for many, many years, now retired. And uh, I'm interested in what he has a, 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 to say about this. He says, uh, this question comes from Matt. It says, would you be able to weigh in on the potential benefits and or risks associated with a flu shot? I'm having a difficult time wading through the conflicting information available out there. Our insurance company initially made a change providing a choice between receiving the shot or paying a $1,700 premium. We can seek a religious or medical exemption, but I'd like to know more information before we make a decision about for our family. If it matters, my wife and I are in late 30s. Our children are 8 and 10 years old. Thank you, Matt. Um, I have a big issue with that. I really do. Um, and I am not anti-vaccine. But I do believe there's risks with vaccines. And I'm going to put out a, a video today, regardless of what Doc Bones has to say about this, uh, from a lady that had a gag order placed on her, was threatened with being thrown in jail, and was fired from her position in the government doing research on vaccines for telling the truth 
about contaminated vaccines. So when you tell me there's no risk to vaccines, uh, some of you guys that call me an anti-vaxxer because I even question the, 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 the status doctrine, uh, I'd like you to answer that. But I'd also like to hear what Doc Bone says about the flu shot and uh, in this particular situation. So, hey, Doc, what say you on this? Hi, Joe Alden here, also known as Dr. Bones at www.doomandbloom.net and the Survival Medicine Handbook, also a member of Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast Expert Council. Our question today comes from Matt, who asks, would you be able to weigh in on the potential benefits and or risks associated with the flu shot? Our insurance company recently made a change providing a choice, quote-unquote, between receiving the shot or paying a $1,700 premium. I'd like more information before we make a decision for our family. If it matters, my wife and I are in our late 30s. Our children are 8 and 10 years old. Matt, when I first read your question, I was taken aback that not getting the flu shot would actually mean a $1,700 penalty to your family. But then I see what being a smoker costs in terms of someone's insurance premium. The Obamacare theory behind all of this is that building a healthier workforce will theoretically curb the use of expensive medical care and hold down overall health care costs. Forcing obese people to lose weight, for instance, should reduce the long-term need for heart and diabetes treatments. Now, the law that allows companies to make you comply or pay through the nose allows the choices you mentioned to be introduced as penalties. But that is beginning to prove unpopular, and you'll probably see it dressed up more positively in the future as discounts, quote-unquote, instead for reaching certain health care goals. Expect to see more of this, by the way, and I hate it, by the way, as well, from more companies with the government's blessing as time goes on. But that's not really your question, is it, Matt? You're asking whether your family should get vaccinated against the flu this year. And this is a question I get asked a lot. And when I describe the risks and benefits, no matter how I do it, someone gets mad. If you're for vaccines, you say that Dr. Bones thinks he knows more than the Center for Disease Control and Prevention that recommends everyone over six months of age get the vaccine. Anything I say against it makes me a heretic. Now, if you're against vaccines, you think I'm some sort of shill for big pharma when I say that some vaccines might just be a good idea. So I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Well, the truth is, is that all vaccines are not created equal. Let's take the case of flu vaccines. Flu vaccines made from last year's flu virus may be effective or not effective depending on how closely this year's virus matches last year's. You'll get 60 to 70% effective if they are similar, but that wasn't the case last year where the flu vaccine barely gave you 20% protection. Now, this could have been due to mutation of the virus or because it didn't activate your antibodies, which give you immunity. Now, new vaccines coming out like Fluad, F-L-U-A-D, look it up, combine an activator for your immune system, a substance called MF-59, which is claimed to especially protect seniors from the flu. That would be good because pneumonia from the flu has been called the old man's friend because it ends their suffering, and I mean permanently. Also, less quantity of vaccine would be needed per dose, and that's also good. Now, what's bad about the flu vaccine? 
in about one in a hundred thousand cases to one in a million cases or so, it causes a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now that causes long-term damage to the nerves. Now, if every U.S. citizen got the vaccine, that would be 300 to 3,000 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome every year. Now, much more often, it causes flu-like viral syndromes. After all, that's what it's made from, and these symptoms go away after a couple of days. But the effects of Guillain-Barre can last a lifetime. Then again, you can expect 36,000 deaths a year from the flu, mostly from the very old and the very young in the United States. Since you and your family aren't elderly or infants, you're less likely to die from the flu than most. At your age, I didn't get the vaccine. But now that I'm the oldest man in existence, I do. After thinking about your situation, a man in his 30s with an 8- and a 10-year-old, I'd get the shot and save the 1700 bucks. That's a lot of money to put into car repairs and college tuition. And the odds of a major complication from the vaccine are pretty low. But I want you to know that this is just another way that politics in healthcare has changed how modern medicine is practiced today. This is Joe Alden, MD of doomandbloom.net, thanking you for your question and wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Well, that sounded like a very fair and balanced, highly informed and accurate overview of the risks and benefits associated with the flu vaccine with a pragmatic approach to a practical problem, which means it probably did exactly what Doc Bone said and pissed everybody off on the, and probably not people that are somewhat open-minded, but the extreme side of either. So they, everybody should do it. Oh, shut up. Shut up. And and everybody that gets the vaccine gets autistic. Shut up. I mean, this is ridiculous. This polarization. I think that there's value specifically for certain conditions, for certain groups of people at risk. This herd immunity bullshit I don't want to hear any more about. If vaccines work as good as they say they do, you get your vaccine, stop worrying about me. By the way, the majority of people that get... Uh, infected by a lot of these diseases that are highly vaccinated against, flu being the exception, but things like measles and all, generally don't get infected from people that didn't get a vaccine. They get infected from people that did get a vaccine and are shedding the viruses, live viruses that are used in the vaccines. But here's what I want from you true believers today that say that there's no risks, even though you just heard risks from a medical professional that was accurately portrayed. This is what I want you to do. I want you to listen to this interview uh, unfortunately, the person that did the interview has something that pisses me off with their video. It's called Vertical Video Syndrome. Please learn to turn your freaking phone sideways, especially when you do an hour and 15 minute long video. But what I'd like you to do is, is go listen to this interview with this lady, Dr. Judy Mikovitz, who, uh, Dorothy uh, showed me this. And she was a, she's a PhD. She was working in the vaccine world found all kinds of contamination, various things wrong with the vaccines, reported the data accurately, was threatened if she didn't destroy the data, refused to, had a gag order placed on her and the threat of being thrown in prison for speaking, uh, and not for breaking law, but for being in contempt of court. Gag orders run out. She's telling everybody everything as fast as she can before they slap another one on her. They destroyed her career. They destroyed this lady's life, and she's not going down without a fight. She's telling the truth. She's an insider, and she's telling the truth. And this is what I want to hear. 
I want to hear from you people in the comment section in today's show that saying there's no risk at all in response to this video. I want to hear you factually refute anything this lady has to say. I want you. I want to hear you explain to me why she was threatened with prison time. I want to hear from you as to why she was threatened. If she opened her mouth, they would throw her in jail. I'd like to hear from you as to why, for telling the truth, her, her career was destroyed, that she was slandered and maligned. I'd like to hear you admit there are risks. And sometimes those risks may not even be the things that you normally hear about, but when things do go wrong... We start jacking around with immunology. We start taking all these things and putting them together. We take all these additives, adjuncts, and preservatives and shove them in there. And all of a sudden, there's an infection. There's a retrovirus in the damn vaccine that ain't supposed to be there. And someone points it out. They're told to shut up and go away. I'd like to hear from you. What I'd like to hear is a dadgone apology. But I know I won't because people tie into this with religious feverence. And this is what I'd like to say. If that's gone on in the past, and we know that it has, and I mean the recent past, how do we not expect that there might be things like that in our vaccines right now, today? And again, what I'd like is an apology. What I know I'll get is more pablum puking dogma. But the more I learn about this issue, the more I become informed about this issue, the less likely I am to allow myself to be immunized except when there is a specific risk. If I'm going to go to a part of the world with a certain disease that is uh, reasonably uh, likely to be exposed to me there and I'm not previously immunized for it or hadn't been in a long time, I would probably take the vaccine risk over the disease risk. But in my early 40s, the flu, screw it. I have had the flu one time, once, Since I've been an adult, it was the one year I got a flu vaccine. I know that doesn't mean that caused it. What it does mean is it doesn't mean I'm not going to get the flu. And again, if you're worried about you getting the flu, you go get a vaccine. Sorry to get on the soapbox there for a minute, but I, I don't know. I just get fed up with it. And when I watch this video with this lady, this Dr. Judy, I didn't really watch it. I listened to it because I can't stand vertical videos. Turn your freaking phone sideways, people. God. Anyway, the more I heard, the more disgusted and sickened I became. The people that are charged with protecting us inside this system want to. And when they try to, they're literally destroyed. Literally destroyed. Again, I'd like an apology from the extreme folks, but I know that's not what I'll get. So let's go on to better things, happier things like, dun-dun-dun, squash. Someone we haven't heard from a long time, and she really is a crowd favorite, so I'm glad she's back today. Erica Strauss, this is, I have a, this is from Barbara, a question of what to do with a couple of squashes I bought. And I've uh, seen squash season. Or it's squash season at a local farmer's market stand. They have a lot of varieties. I asked the manager about these squashes, and I locked into a marble and a sweet meat squash. Uh, he said they are heirlooms and keepers. I bought one of each. They were both 15 pounds each, and they were the small ones. He was kind enough to carry them in my car with 30 pounds of squash. I'll be eating a lot of it over the winter season. So how do I crack into these beauties and prepare them? Barbara, Erica, what say you? On squash. 
Hi guys, this is Erica. So this week my question comes from Barbara who bought a marble and a sweetmeat winter squash at the market and wants to know how to tackle these big old squash. Well, first, Barbara, congratulations on your choice of sweetmeat. That's an heirloom winter squash that is very popular out here in the Pacific Northwest where I live, but virtually unknown in most of the country. I love sweetmeat and I grow it most years as my preferred keeper squash. So big fan of your choice. Now, I'm not personally familiar with a winter squash called marble, but there is an old heirloom called marblehead known for its keeping quality that's quite similar to sweetmeat. So I'm guessing that what you picked up is a selection of that. If I'm right, then both of your winter squashes are in the squash family known as cucurbita maxima. The maxima type winter squashes, which also include banana squash and buttercup and the hubbards, these tend to be large to very large in size, as you might guess from their name. And they have a thick skin that tends to make them extremely good keepers. You can get eight months to a year out of some of these guys if you keep them in an appropriate climate. Now, the best bread varieties of the Maxima family are, to my mind, also the best flavored winter squash going. They tend to have dense, sweet, thick flesh. And when the line is really well bred, they also have a very small seed cavity. So you get a lot of flesh to seed cavity. So I think you're going to be really happy with these choices. With a large squash like sweet meat, you do have to have a game plan about how you're going to use this thing up. While the squash will keep for months and months when whole and undamaged, as soon as you cut into it, it's as perishable as any other fresh vegetable. So what I recommend is, unless your family is huge or you're throwing a party or everyone in the neighborhood is coming over, plan on some other food preservation method to store what squash you can't eat in a single sitting. I think it's easiest to just freeze. You can freeze chunks of winter squash raw, but I prefer to freeze the roasted, mashed flesh in quart-sized zip-top bags. And if you freeze these bags flat, kind of smooth them so they lay flat, they take up very little room in the freezer. And you can also make finished items like winter squash soup or pumpkin bread, and you can freeze those. But do be very careful about attempting to can winter squash. There is no safe recipe to water bath canned pumpkin at home, including items like pumpkin butter. Chunks of winter squash, but not pureed or mashed squash, can be pressure canned if you have a pressure canner. I'll send a link to Jack for an approved recipe in case that's a direction you want to go. Okay, so when it comes to cooking and using your squash, the first thing to know is that you don't need to peel the squash raw. And in fact, I'd avoid trying to because it's a serious pain in the butt and the chance that you'll chop off your own hand is relatively good. Once the squash is cooked, you'll be able to just scoop the cooked flesh off the skin with a large spoon. This works very well and is far easier than attempting to peel the squash while it's raw. Now, for cooking, you've got a couple options. The easiest thing is to roast your squash whole if it will fit in your oven. So for this, what you do is get a screwdriver and a hammer or an electric drill, and you knock a few holes into your squash. These holes will allow the moisture in the squash to vent out and will keep your squash from exploding in your oven and becoming a big mess. Then you just set the whole thing on a sheet pan or in a shallow dish, and you pop it in a 350-degree oven for a couple hours. When a knife or a skewer will slide right through the skin in the flesh without resistance your squash is cooked let it cool off a bit just so you can handle it and you'll be able to slice it up into manageable sized chunks easily scoop the flesh off the skin and proceed with your recipe now, if the idea of roasting a squash as heavy as a Thanksgiving turkey is a little bit intimidating, you're going to have to hack your squash open. This is easier said than done. The best tool for the job is a handsaw, like the kind you get at a hardware store or big box store. Sawing through the squash like this is far easier than cutting through it with a knife. 
If you have to use a knife, what I recommend is a sturdy meat cleaver, although a heavy-duty chef's knife will work as well. You'll want to position your squash on a towel so that it doesn't slip around too much, and you're going to put your cleaver right at the midline of the squash because we're going to cut it in half. Use a mallet, or if you're careful, you could use like a little hammer, gently tap, and tap the cleaver into the squash. Once you're through the flesh, you want to rotate the blade of your cleaver or knife so it's at an angle to the squash and just continue to tap the back of your knife with that mallet until you go all the way around the squash. You'll have to rotate the squash a bit as you go, but eventually the whole squash will split in two. This is the safest, easiest way I've found to get that initial splitting of the squash. Now you just set your squash cut side down so it's more stable, and you repeat this knife tap process as you need to get chunks the size you want. Now, Barbara, I suspect you already have some good squash recipes because most people who commit to 30 pounds of winter squash have some idea that they like to eat squash. But just in case, here is a few of my favorite ways to use up sweet meat at my own house. Soup is always a favorite. I just puree roasted squash, chicken stock, a little bit of apple cider vinegar, maybe a little bit of cream. And then often I'll add curry powder to my uh, winter squash soups because I really find that highlights the flavor of the squash in a way I really like. I've also had very good luck making squash gnocchi and squash ravioli. Both of these are sort of pasta type things. Uh, Gnocchi are typically made with potato, but I've had very good luck making my gnocchi with winter squash puree. The dry flesh of the type of squash you have would be very good used like this. Um, After you cook your gnocchi or your ravioli, you just toss them in a little brown butter and sage. Very delicious treat. I like chunks of roasted squash in salads, and you can do a great vegetable-heavy three-sister-style chili with squash, corn, and beans. That's very good. Winter squash is great in stews of many kinds, like um, lamb and winter squash stew with lentils is very good, kind of a Middle Eastern-inspired, hearty, cold-weather meal that's delicious. And then, of course, you can take any of the puree from your squashes and use that in any way that you would use canned packed pumpkin, including things like pumpkin pie, pumpkin bread, pumpkin ice cream, etc. So, Barbara, I hope this helps get you started with your giant winter squash. Um, Congratulations again, and I hope they're very delicious for you. Guys, this has been Erica from Northwest Edible Life. I just want to say thank you so much to the TSP community for your support of my book, The Hands-On Home. It's getting great reviews on Amazon, and I know for a fact that some of those reviews are from folks in this community. So thank you very much. You guys are the best. Uh, You can come visit me and say hi anytime at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible, and I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Gee, I'm supposed to be the professional podcaster here, but man, isn't she just badass? Really? Um, i got a little uh, additional tip for everybody else out there if you want to try making squash soup. Dorothy and I really, really love a squash soup that we were taught how to make by Sandy Beanit, and it is made with uh, butternut squash, apples, and onions. And, you know, you heard Erica talk about taking these things apart, and it's not that big a deal. But we were at Costco, and I saw that they have these packages, two pounds, and a, a normal size butternut weighs about two pounds. Uh, two, but it's two pounds of squash, not two pounds of squash plus two, you know, plus uh, skin plus seed and plus pulp. Two pounds of pure squash, cubed up, ready to go, and I think it comes out to about three bucks a pound, which is about what a good organic butternut squash sells for. Now, it nowhere near competes with growing them yourself, but if you have to buy them, uh, since it's an organic 
pre-cubed product, I can't really recommend buying it at the store. In fact, when I did the math, I could buy it by the pound for less from Costco than I could buy it whole organic butternut squash from like Albertsons. Somebody else doing all the work. And with that, we just took it and put it on the cookie sheet, rubbed it down with some oil, salt, and pepper, and roasted it in the oven. Do the same with the, the apples and the onion. And then the onions get sautéed in the pan. You put it all together. You add chicken broth. You cook it down. You run it through a processor. Man, it's good. It's one of Dorothy's favorites. And uh just want to throw that out there that you may not have to be ripping squash apart and dealing with. Because what we do, we cut it in half. We take out the pulp. Rub it oil, salt, and pepper, and we roast it in the oven, and then we scrape it out of the skin. And it's not a huge deal, but the last time we did it, it was really, really flipping easy uh, to just buy the pre-cube stuff, and it costs less for the same quality product. It wasn't less than buying conventional, you know, grown squash, but organic. It actually costs us less at Costco. So these of you guys with your Costco cards may want to consider that. Last question today is for for someone we haven't heard from for quite a while as well, uh, Jeff Lawton. Jeff, of course, I consider to be my greatest personal mentor in the world of permaculture. If you haven't gone to jefflawton.com, gotten a free membership there, and, and watched all his videos, you really should. Because if you're ever wondering, like, why is Jack so into, um, you know, these these question or the, this 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 quest of permaculture and why does he make it such a big part of modern survivalism it, it's when you understand what it can do that that all makes sense and you know it was like when i was coming here and i was asking jeff for some ideas about this property and whether or not i should buy it the questions he was asking me weren't just the questions a permaculture consultant would ask They were very much the same questions I would ask if somebody was just asking me about self-sufficiency and self-reliance and being independent and being able to feed yourself. Uh, maybe to a degree more than I would ask at an initial level. And, and I have to say that while I've gained so much by working with and learning from great people like Paul Wheaton, like Mark Shepard, and, and many others, Bill Wilson springs to mind, Uh, the work of Bill Mollison, the work of David Holgram. Um, it, it's, it's Jeff that when I'm out doing something, I ask myself the question, what would, what would Jeff do here? And it, even sometimes I think, well, Jeff would do this and I'm going to do this anyway. It's always a consideration. He's, he's my, one of my biggest mentors in the world and I'm, I'm very grateful to have him on the expert council. And this question's about permaculture training and it's a very practical question that I think a lot of people have that just have small properties and want to do their thing for themselves. They don't really want to, to worry about consulting for others. They don't, they're not worried about running a big farm or even doing a three acre thing like I'm doing. They, you know, they got a quarter acre or something. They just want to make it hyper productive and easy to manage. The question comes from Ben. Ben wants to know, how much permaculture training do you really recommend for the suburban homeowner? Jeff, what do you have to say on this one? And I'll be back to close up the show for the week. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here that relates to um, how much training do you recommend for an average suburban homeowner? Um, is there anything less than a PDC that's commonly available? Um, because uh, this person has no intention of doing permaculture for a living. 
He just wants to use it in that in that urban situation. Well, an introduction to permaculture is a great way to understand that it's a, a design science. And um, when I teach an introduction to permaculture, I normally cover um, the eight chapters in the Introduction to Permaculture book. And I often give the Introduction to Permaculture book by Bill Mollison as um, part of the introduction course. I normally teach it over two days. Can could be covered in a weekend, um, so four four chapters a day, and that gives you a good grounding in what permaculture is about. But then, of course, um, you can take a specific to climate and location course with local people, and they're often taught by um, local permaculture groups or, or uh, associate co-teachers within a region and an area. And a great thing you can do also is go to a perma blitz, um, where a, a practical workshop is held at someone's house. All the materials are provided, and then a group of people uh, come together to uh, install a system. And of course, a lot of chat and a lot of talking goes on, and quite a lot of learning and sharing. And um, you get to actually experience um, uh, a system being installed. And, and implemented, and um, and and if you get an opportunity to uh, revisit, you can see how that goes in establishment. Now, if you attend a few perma blitzes, um, it's it's of great value. Uh, so is an introduction course, and so so are the specialty courses, or or, or special to location courses that are often held. Um, so you, you need to find uh, your local permaculture group, uh, uh, local permaculture action. Uh, you might uh, it might be valuable to inquire on 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 some of the uh, forums in your region to see what sort of things happening uh, nearby where you live. There you go. Good stuff from Jeff, and I have some thoughts on this too. Um, starting out with the PDC. The, the biggest value I see in a PDC with people that have taken one, a good one, um, is when, when I talk to them, I'll have to re-explain a hundred different things just to get to why I'm doing what I'm doing. And a lot of times when you're, you're working with people to help them set up a system, they naturally want to know why you're doing what you're doing. There's a point for, because I said so, and you're paying me to tell you, so just freaking do it. But really for a person to operate a system optimally and have the confidence in it to stick with it the way that you've laid it out for them, it's better that they understand why. And you want people replicating. And in permaculture, we're, we're trying to make sure that everybody we interact with can take what we've given them Add to it, do more with it, and teach somebody else to do it. They we're spreading this like a freaking virus. So, so that's a good thing. But urban permaculture is very forgiving. It's very forgiving. And it's, it, it, since you're constantly working on your own property, it's also forgiving in that way because you find mistakes and just work through them. You, you're not going out and doing something and walking away, or you're not putting it at a broad scale where when it fails, you've lost $10,000 this year uh, in losses directly, and you've lost out on $20,000 worth of income because it failed. And now you're screwed, right? You don't have that in urban permaculture. We don't have to get things just perfectly right from a standpoint of water management because we can irrigate a half acre, a quarter acre, etc. A lot of houses, when you buy it, it's all, the irrigation's there. 
So she started installing beds and things. You have to be careful just not to mess up what's there and maybe reroute a few things. But, you know, the whole damn thing's irrigated anyway. We can, we can sheet mulch a quarter of an acre. You know, by the time we look at a quarter acre lot, we look at where the house sits, where the garage sits, where the, uh, the, uh, the, the driveway sits, the sidewalk runs across the front easement, fence line, a deck, and, and an area we're going to keep green so the kids can kick a ball around. You know, we're, we're, you're, you know, sheet mulching a tenth of an acre. Well, you can afford to just buy the material and sheet mulch a tenth of an acre. You can walk around your neighborhood when you're in the suburbs. You've got a readily available resource and leaves. And you can sheet mulch your acre from your neighbor's leaves. So there's it's just so much. So the reason I say that is there's so many reasons why the person that just wants to manage their backyard can get away with not having a PDC and actually become a very, very astute permaculturist because they're going to very much do. I think the most important permaculture principle when it comes to managing land long term, you're going to observe and interact. You look at your window out front and back, you can see your whole damn property. You can observe your whole damn property without leave. I suggest you get out there and walk it. I really do, every day. But in the end, you can see every square inch of your property from the front porch and the back porch. Zones are far less important because, it, yeah, it would be better if you at least zoned it into two zones, primary activity, secondary activity, and and thought about that and things that you're going to do every day were a little closer to the house and all. But really, if you have the average suburban backyard, what is it to walk to the back fence? Seven seconds, eight seconds, ten seconds? Let's say it's flipping 20 because you're slow and your yard's long and narrow. Let's say it's 20 seconds. And let's say the front half is one and the second half is two. So what are you out in an extra trip? 20 seconds? If you go all the way to the back fence? And most people are switched on enough to not put a high activity level at the very back fence unless there's a reason to, like I'm going to put a path through here and I'm going to weed stuff on the way to the chickens that I keep in a run along the back fence. And then it makes perfect sense. I think that the truth is that if we get into planting perennials, multi-layered systems, high productivity, and soil care and management in a small space, permaculture happens naturally. You almost can't not do it. Like, you're going to get there. You see something doesn't do well, so you plant it somewhere else. You see something does well, so whatever other spot you have, you only have one or two spots that are just like that, so they all get planted with the same thing. You notice that things do well together, so in the little space you have, you plant them together. The more space you get, the more freedom you get in design, and then, therefore, the more errors you can actually make. And I think suburbanites are also less likely to do something radical and screw up a property because you're thinking more along the lines of, I'm going to have to sell this to somebody that wants to buy a suburban property. I think that work against you can get a little bit too fearful and not do enough stuff that's really cool. But a suburban property, you can easily put in one big water tank on the side of the house and take care of all your watering with drip irrigation for the whole property. There's just a lot you can do with small properties. And a lot of decisions get really easy to make because you're limited. And what Jeff has taught me, and it's something I've had to learn over the years over and over and over again, is the more restrictions you have, the more elegant your designs become. It's when you have 10 acres in a square, perfectly laid out, flat, easy to do, good soil, no restrictions whatsoever, no existing infrastructure, 
and you can do whatever the hell you want, you're like, I don't know what to do. And you think you want that until you get it. And then you start saying, well, there's no infrastructure. Now I've got to worry about buildings and stuff like that. That crap's expensive. You know, with a suburban property, you get all kind of, you get microclimates as a byproduct. You got people on both sides of you. You have shade zones on the side of your house one way or another. Okay? You've got walls made out of some sort of material that's going to hold heat. So you've got heat sinks in those situations that radiate heat back out in the evening. So you've got frost buffers with that. You've got fences. You've got vertical spaces because of those fences. If neighbors have trees, you have shade spots. If a neighbor has a tree that's growing, you have to think that sooner or later it's going to create shade. And where's that going to be? And what do I put there to outcompete that tree to get up above it so that I'm shading myself with something I want that's productive? It, 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 to me, it gets a lot easier. And I think there's still, and I've been saying this for years, a missing piece in permaculture for consultants and teachers that would do well to focus on suburban design and do like a four-day class done on four Saturdays in a row or four Saturdays every other Saturday and then work in some permal blitzes like Jeff was talking about with that. Um, and, and to focus on almost the complete opposite of what I'm trying to always get people to focus on with permaculture. And I want, I'm really interested in having a discussion with Jeff about this concept the next time he's on the air. Permaculture is not tactics. Permaculture strategy. And it's a strategy that's built upon multiple techniques. And when we implement those techniques, they then become tactics. So when we look at a situation with permaculture, ideally we want to form a top-level strategy. Provide 40% of the calories with low-input systems for the residents of this property. That's a strategy. Okay, And then we take all the techniques of permaculture, culture, raised beds, wicking beds, aquaculture, uh, livestock management, composting, and just all of them are all in there. Like when you take a martial art, you take Taekwondo, you learn various forms, kicks, moves, blocks. Those are all the techniques that make up the overlying strategy that is the martial art. And then the tactic comes when we say, now that we recognize the strategy is to accomplish this, we need water security. Here's a roof. Here's how water catchment and water management, out of all the ways that those can be done, best suit our needs and our resources and our availability right here and now. So, yeah, it would be great to have a 2,000-gallon uh, poly tank. We don't have the money for that. We don't want to use IBCs for whatever reason. Rain barrels are inadequate. So micro-earthworks and channeling the roof water into the ground and holding into the ground is a low-input way that we can do that. Those earthworks then become the tactics. But the tactics are first driven by the strategy, the full knowledge of the techniques, and then the implementation of the tactic. That's what you should do even in a small suburban property. But you can get away with it the other way. You can get away with learning a whole bunch of techniques and applying them as tactics because it's such a forgiving space. And sooner or later, you'll just kind of figure out how that all fits together for you. And, and that means you can work with less of an education. But I think if we can get people into that strategy, techniques, tactics mindset, that we can handle anything from broad acre to small spaces. 
So I would say that, it, that, that beyond the training, if you can start thinking that way, that systems-level thinking, I think, is the most powerful part of the design science that is the strategy of permaculture. Those are my thoughts on that. With that, I'm ready to wrap up for today. I hope everybody does have a great weekend like Nick Ferguson uh, was smart enough to wish you, and I picked up on that and make sure I'm going to do the same. As for the song I'm going to close with today, I, I, I bring a lot of older music to you guys because I, I like to play stuff you haven't heard or haven't heard in a long time, depending on who you are. And I think that older music was in more ways original than a lot of stuff that's coming out today. But one of the guys in mainstream country music that's out right now that I think is still putting some real originality into his music is a guy named Josh Thompson. And he's uh, the guy that I've played way out here from a couple times for you. And I think it's a great song for us. But I've got one that I think really speaks to me and my personality. And, and, and it's something that I try to convey that I want this type of thing to speak to you and your personality, even if your personality is dramatically different than mine. I think it's good that we learn to adapt and work with others. But I think that the biggest problem, or one of the biggest problems, that society has today is people aren't themselves anymore. It is one of the many symptoms of political correct bullshit. It's one of the many symptoms of, you know, this is why people like Jerry Seinfeld won't even play comedy tours on college campuses anymore because we have a generation of wusses on our hand that are, uh, hands that are of offended by everything. Well, here's the thing. If you're offended by everything and everybody around you is offended by everything, you're fake as shit. I mean, that's all it comes down to. That's the biggest problem, I think, with these young people today in Generation Wuss. You're fake as shit. You claim to be authentic, but when you're offended by everything and you're afraid that if you say something offensive, all your friends and cohorts won't like you anymore, you're fake ass. You're plastic. And that's what society's becoming, a homogenized plastic pile of crap. That's why our music sucks anymore, because it's all plastic. It's all the same. You know, it's it's all the same stuff rehashed and regurgitated and respitted out. And even if the lyrics are original, it's the same riffs, it's the same chords, it's the same arrangement, it's the same formula. And we're not supposed to live that way. We're not supposed to create that way, whether it's a permaculture design or an implementation of a business or just being your damn self for a change. That's why I like this song. Even though it is a little bit formulaic in the music, I, I think this artist is, is trying to break that mold, but if you're going to be in mainstream music, they're going to force the formula on you. So stick more to the words today than the musical arrangements. And I've always been me, and my challenge to all of you today, especially you young people, be your damn self. Always be your damn self. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, yeah, or even if they don't. Fast. Guess that's just how I live. I've earned every scar I've got. Learned a lot of things the hard way. No, I ain't quite been the pillar of this community But I've always been me I take the 
defend it till I'm gone I try to do what's right Sometimes it comes out all wrong Hell, I've never been an angel And I'll never claim to be But I've always been me Get is what you see I've been called 